1: Welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Simon Broadbeck, who is at Cardiff University on his uh, wonderful new translation of the Harivamsa Krishna's lineage. Hello, Simon, and welcome to the program. Hello, Raj. It's lovely to be here. Yes, and Simon and I have had some interactions in the past. We met at a conference in Bangkok, I believe, and and we have various right. interests. Um, if this was a few years back, I and I was on this. At this post, I would be interviewing you on in your last book, your your Mahabharata line book. I found that book endlessly fascinating, only because I ended up um, I ended up discovering that I, I think the Markandeya Purana agrees with you <laughs> on what you say in that book. Um, thank you, thank you. Uh, you're most welcome. You're most welcome. But but we're, we're here to talk about Krishna's lineage. So this is a translation of the Harivamsha. Maybe you can say a little bit about. You know, well you know what is the harivamsha and and how does it relate to to as the subtitle says of Vyasis mahabharata
0: yeah well um the Harivamsa is uh, a collective shorthand for the so called keyers of the mahabharata that is k h i l a um which are effectively they are books of the mahabharata that is small books uh in the, the one hundred book scheme of the Mahabharata, which are not contained in any of the major books. That is, they fall after the end of Book 18 of the Mahabharata, as it's usually conceived, and um, and so they don't. Yeah, they they they're included after the end of the story of the Pandavas, basically. And so, um, sorry, go on. So. After the story of the Pandavas has been completed by Vaishampayana at the end of book 18 of the Mahabharata, then at the beginning of the Harivamsa, um, more is asked um, about Krishna and his family, the Vrishnis. And the, the, the frame that just closed at the end of Mahabharata 18 is reopened again. So that, uh, Vaishampayana can, can answer Janamejaya's question and, uh, tell a whole lot more material about Krishna and his family. So that, uh, takes up most of the Hari That is the first two books of the Hari And then in the last book of the Hari that is the last Kila, um, the so-called Parvan, the book of the future, we get a very, very interesting sequence of stories about Janamejaya, who, of course, was the king who heard the story of his ancestors, the Pandavas, and then the stories of Krishna during the course of his uh, snake sacrifice. Um, and so at the end of the Harivamsha, we hear what happened to him Later on, after the snake sacrifice and uh, his further adventures, so it it, uh, it continues the Mahabharata and uh, it finishes it. You no,
1: know, it just occurs to me as we're talking that if I'm not mistaken, this might be the first uh, book which is a, a translation, and so it has it has uh, other dimensions of the kinds of things I might like to ask you. But if you could tell folks what it's you know how did you end up uh, deciding to translate? Uh, the Hari how long did it take you and, and what was that like? What was that process like? Many years ago,
0: in well, in 2008, when I first came to Cardiff to work with uh, my colleague here, James Hegarty, uh, we were doing a, a project on genealogy in, uh, in Indian literature. And so, uh, that, for that project, I started to translate the Hari Vamsha by translating specifically the Sections of it that contain the genealogy descending from the Sun and the genealogy descending from the moon uh, So that that's how it started and then having done that uh, After that project with James was finished um, Effectively I decided I'd, I'd like to translate the whole thing uh, Mostly because by then I'd become convinced that it was a genuine part of the Mahabharata and since I've been spending most of my career studying the Mahabharata, I thought I needed to, uh, to get to know the Harivamsa and not just me, but uh, also other Mahabharata scholars. Uh, so uh, there was a clear need for a, for a new translation, not least because the, the Harivamsa was edited as part of the Mahabharata Critical Edition Project. Uh, in 1969, and that critically reconstituted version of the text is very, very different from the so-called Vulgate Harivamsha, which is the one, the only one that had previously been translated before that. And so, so really, the the Harivamsha as we now have it is much shorter and much punchier than the Harivamsha that. Uh, the old Orientalists used to deal with. Um, so that's why I set out on my project, but uh, it's been a long road really. I, I was lucky enough to to receive funding from the Arts and Humanities Research Council from 2011 to 2014. Um, but after that, my other academic duties Got in the way slightly, and it was only when I had a period of research leave that ended um, a year and a half ago that I was able to complete the translation and, uh, you know, dot the i's and cross the t's. So, so,
1: yeah, it's, it's no small feat. I mean, this is um, this is a, a huge contribution to to folks who study Hinduism, particularly narrative, particularly the Mahabharata, the Puranas. Um, and so, can you give us a sense of what the process of translation is like? Are you looking? Um, you looking at the, the Sanskrit verses in the critical edition. Are you like? What is that process like for you? Well, the way I did it
0: was uh, I got hold of a transliteration of the critical edition, which had been put together under the aegis of uh, Peter Schreiner, with uh, a whole lot of colleagues of his. Uh, in connection with the Dubrovnik International Conference on the Sanskrit Epics and Puranas. Um, so an, an awful lot of different scholars had agreed to to transliterate uh, from the Devanagari of the critical edition and, and make a uh, an e-version in, in Roman script. And so I managed to download that from the website of the University of Zurich and... Effectively, I put the Sanskrit text in the left-hand column of an enormous Word document, and I gradually filled in the English translation in the right-hand column. Um, And the process of doing that is essentially a process of making yourself move on to the next verse, because you will never be happy. With your translation of any verse and so the only way to actually move forward is by force of will just by continuously telling yourself that you can come back and change it later if you need to um, so I, over a period of several years i, I managed to uh, produce a complete first draft and then at that point i kind of knew what was in the text and so when i went back and uh adjusted the first draft and turned it into a second draft I, I could i kind of knew where the stories were going um and but of course in the second draft i had to deal with all the mistakes i'd made on the first draft and all the bits that, where i just had to put something and a question mark for myself uh in order to move on all the, all, the, all the toughest bits were, were still waiting for me, um, but eventually I completed a second draft and then I went back and revisited some of the more problematic passages for a third time. But uh, in principle there's no end to the amount of uh, drafts you need to do before it's actually good enough, but you've got to draw the line somewhere. So, uh, yeah eventually I bashed it into some kind of shame
1: no it's 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 quite something it's very accessible um it's um, the accessibility of the prose in english um, really obscures how difficult this would have been uh, to render yes and so one may thumb through this and not get a sense that uh, each each verse would have taken you bit of time um so whether did you do it sequentially it's 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 a it's a textured layer of text like like the epics and the puranas often are uh, were there certain sections that you prioritized did first or did you just do it from top to bottom or what was that process like well apart from having done the genealogical sections
0: first the the, the um Surya Vamsha descending from the sun and the Soma Vamsha descending from the moon. Uh, I did do those bits first because that was before I decided to do the whole thing. But once I decided to do the whole thing, I did just
1: start at the beginning and, and move forward. Yeah, so so, from beginning to end. I have two uh, interrelated questions, but I'll, I'll frame them both up front so you can decide in what order or how you'd like to, to address them. The, the the first question is, you know, what sorts of things do we see in the Hari Vamsha? Obviously there's the Hari Vamsha, there's the Vamsha, the lineage, the line, the genealogy of, of, of Hari. Um, but what, what sorts of materials do we see in there? And that probably relates well to the second question I had, which you touched on, you preempted, which is, you know, is this integral to the Mahabharata? Is this uh, an epilogue? Is it an appendix? Is it a vital part of the story? Is it useful for interpreting the main story? Is it sort of, uh, I have this phrase in my brain I call Trojan horsing. Is it just Trojan horsed into the Mahabharata for for ideological reasons? And so um, if you could address both those things, what do we see in the Harivamsha, and to what extent do you feel that it is integral or not to the Mahabharata? Mm, thanks.
0: Yeah. Well, um, it's an enormously varied text. I mean, the uh, the first book, the so-called Harivamsa Parvan, is uh, an enormous variety of materials, from long genealogical lists uh, giving the family background of all the main characters of the Mahabharata and the Harivamsa. It's got a um a creation narrative right at the beginning um and including you know the the birth and establishment of the first king um and the, the the cosmology of the the 14 manus who preside over over the cosmos from beginning to end um it's got an awful lot of uh Beautiful little stories interspersed within the genealogies. So, you know, some of the characters that occur in those genealogies are quite well known and attached to various stories, pithy um, versions of which are presented in the genealogy. Um, it's got uh, an overview of the various manifestations of the great god Vishnu, all uh, his previous avatars before he. Came to earth as Krishna, all those beautiful stories are told here. It's got a long version of uh, the so called Tarakamaya war between the gods and the demons in times of yore. Uh, so, um, very beautiful and extended uh, battlefield sequence there between the gods and the demons, and then it contextualizes. Vishnu's descent to earth as Krishna by giving a long account of the problems that the earth was having and how the earth went to Brahma and complained and Brahma chatted with the gods and with Vishnu and they decided they all had to come down to earth to cause this huge war that uh, that took place at Kurukshetra, which we've already heard narrated in the uh, main part of the Mahabharata. And then uh, in the the second book, in the book of Vishnu, effectively it starts with Krishna's birth and it goes through all, all the deeds of his childhood, um, how he killed his wicked uncle Kamsa and uh, how he had to move his people from Mathura to Dvaraka on the west coast um, to get away from the uh, the rapacious King Jarasandha. And then after the Rishis and Krishna have moved to Dvaraka, there's a, a sequence of what we might call the latter day adventures of Krishna, um, which principally concern his dealings on behalf of his family with his in-laws, and with his sons-in-laws, and with his grandsons-in-laws. So it really takes you right through Krishna's life um, until he must be really quite an old man. But it, it's not you wouldn't like to call it a, a biography because it doesn't finish at the end, because uh, Krishna's death and the... Uh, flooding of Dvaraka have already been narrated earlier in in the Mahabharata in book 16, the Mausala Parvan, so that's left out of the Harivamsa. Um, So, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, in the last book of the Harivamsa, there are, um, amongst other things, a variety of stories about what happened to Janamejaya after the snake sacrifice. So, it is a wide variety of material, and it is told in, in, in quite a punchy fashion. You know, it moves on, it moves quickly. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't drag, um, but it's mostly adventure stories. It, there's a lot of fighting. Uh, there's a lot of uh, debating about what should be done. Um, there's a lot of uh, stories of marriages and children, uh, because it's effectively a family narrative. and. Regarding the second question, I mean, I think I've started to answer that already. uh, Not just in what I said right at the beginning, but in what I said just now about uh, how Krishna is not the is intended to be viewed in light of the first eighteen books of the Mahabharata. It doesn't repeat material that it's already presented there. Um, But more generally, in The Western scholarly tradition it has usually been seen as a a later addition to the Mahabharata, or even as a completely separate text from the Mahabharata. But my view is that that's a a bit of a mistake because the in the second chapter of the Mahabharata there are several tables of contents that are presented, um, and both of the tables of contents that are presented there include the so-called kila's that make up the Harivamsha. So, the Mahabharata at the outset views itself as including the Harivamsha and this is also evident in the story of Janamejaya because in the third chapter of the Mahabharata, um, where Janamejaya's story begins, the first thing we hear is that because Janamejaya's brothers beat up a dog that had done nothing wrong, the dog's mother, Sarama, cursed Janamejaya to suffer an unseen danger. And there's no clue given in the rest of the 18 books of the mahabharata as to what this unseen danger might be it's only when you get to the very last chapter of the hari that it becomes evident that what was referred to there in this curse is what happens at janamejaya's horse sacrifice when indra who is jealous of janamejaya and in love with his wife takes the form of the sacrificial horse And in the famous scene of the ancient Indian horse sacrifice, where the chief queen of the king has to uh, go under a blanket and at least simulate having sex with the horse, um, she's actually having sex with Indra. And when Janamejaya finds out about this, he's absolutely furious. And this is presumably the unseen danger that was referred to by the dog's mother. All that time ago in Mahabharata chapter three. So it does tie in. I mean, that's just one example of, of the, the nice narrative ways in, w- in which the, uh, the Harivamsha is integrated into the Mahabharata. But uh, I, I really am convinced personally that it is uh, it's all part of the same text. Um, and I'm interested to find out what this might do in future with our understandings of the mahabharata if we if we include the Harivamsha as part of it we might be able to see it in new ways that's uh yeah i mean that but that's not what the translation is about obviously that's uh, that's just that's in a way my my uh more general project but uh the the translation for me forms part of but uh obviously it can be understood and appreciated uh, in any number of ways by any number of different audiences and uh, i'm glad to hear you say that you think it's nice and accessible because that's one of the that was one of the priorities for me as i was as i was doing the translation i was trying to tell myself don't just translate for your colleagues your the people that you uh, meet up with at conferences translate it for People who might not have read any Indian literature before. Well,
1: um, the, yeah. the the word you end on their uh, um, literature, you know, it, it fascinates me that, you know, I have degrees that say um, I studied religion, and of course I do. Um, uh, you know, obviously, I'm an area expert in Hinduism. This is why I can host this podcast. But at the end of the day, more and more, I have so much more in common at times with folks who do literary theory and who study literature, study narrative. And it seems to me that it could, it may well just be because I have a similar approach It resonates, but nevertheless, it seems to me that the folks who study the, the Sanskrit narrative literature, the epics and the Puranas, the ones that have a, an appreciation and a flavor for literature are the ones that can understand the ways in which these texts are literarily quite sophisticated. Although yeah. they may be diachronically produced, it seems to me that by the final redactions there was an extraordinary literary eye at work. And that to me, for me, that is the that is the the juice of interpreting them. So the flip side of that is th- that very same literary appreciation uh, in the in the toolbox of, of of how you study these texts is probably um, part and parcel in why you uh, were willing and able to render the translation in so accessible a manner, and this is what I mean. When I read through it, you you don't. Um, I don't know how to put this. Uh, quite often, when you're reading a translation of Sanskrit text, you could imagine uh, it's not. It's not. Um, you're very conscious of the fact that this is being translated out of Sanskrit. Yet, in some passages in the Harivamsa, that awareness slips away from me if that makes any sense it, it it very much reads like as if at times composed in english which for anybody who has any uh, knowledge of sanskrit or how what an utterly different twilight zone world is grammatically uh, syntactically uh, you know for me that's a feat but yeah for me it reads it reads extraordinarily excessively um well it's very kind of you to say so
0: and i'm very glad to hear you say it because that was uh you know, one of the things I was trying to achieve. I mean, there is a a famous dialect of English called Sanskritic English, which is what uh, an awful lot of uh, translations have uh, have effectively been rendered in, where the the word order in the Sanskrit has has been retained, the the strange ways of putting things, or strange from an English point of view, the repeated use of the passive, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I I tried to. To mix it around and make it uh make it sound better as as good as i could make it sound in english really i mean i'm, I'm not a poet but uh but it is poetry and it, and it shouldn't read like a, a crib from sanskrit no. and but more generally i mean I, I i totally agree with what you say about literature i mean i think the, the so-called epics and the Puranas have have been uh not nearly as well served by the philological tradition of Sanskrit studies as a lot of other genres of uh, of Indian texts have, because they, you know, they are supposed to be accessible to all people. They, I mean, the the Mahabharata and the Harivamsha explicitly say this is a text for all four social classes, for both genders. And you know, there's not supposed to be anything elitist or recondite about it, so it's uh, it, it deserves the literary treatment much more than, than
1: some genres of, of Sanskrit text do. Are there parts of it that you, um, obviously parents can't play favorites, but are there parts, are there parts of verses or chapters or themes that sort of you know that that um that are your favorites of the text?
0: Well there are certainly some passages where I was, ups- I was uh, totally thrilled by what happened. Um, amongst uh, Krishna's fights, I particularly love the the fight with the demon horse Keshin, where um, in the course of the combat, I mean, Krishna's just uh, an adolescent at this point. He's, he's quite young, um, but he, the way he deals with the, the charging horse is he just uh, he elongates his arm and he whacks his arm through the horse, front to back, and the horse just kind of falls apart. You know, the two sides of the horse crumple to the ground. and I, I, I mean, it's completely brutal. And then, actually, a lot of the fight scenes are quite horrific. But uh, once you once you start to appreciate the... The cartoonish quality of the violence—that—that um, that scene gave me particular pleasure to to, to witness, and um, several other scenes as well. There's a there's a lovely scene where, well, lovely is probably not quite the right word, but the the scene, the dicing scene in the Hari which takes place um, at the wedding celebrations of Krishna's grandson Aniruddha. Um, And Krishna's brother Baladeva is challenged to play dice by Rukmin who is uh, Krishna's brother-in-law and uh, effectively the head of the family from which uh, Krishna's grandson's new wife comes. And that's why they're there as guests for that wedding. Um, So, Baladeva is challenged to play dice in in the same kind of way as Yudhishthira is challenged to play dice by Shakuni in book two of the Mahabharata. Uh, It's a similar situation in that everybody knows apparently that Baladeva is not very good at dicing and the person who's challenging him is uh, a known expert. And so as in book two of the Mahabharata, Baladeva loses throw after throw after throw and um it looks as if it's going to go the same way as the the dice match in in book two of the Mahabharata did but uh in both of those dice matches there is a final throw where the stake is an awful lot higher than any of the previous stakes. and although yudhishthira in book two loses that throw as well in the harivansha's dice game baladeva by some miracle or other, presumably because he is actually Vishnu, um, manages to win that final throw and uh, effectively wins the whole game. But uh, he he goes crazy at the end because he's been uh, humiliated during the course of the game verbally by his opponent. And so actually he ends up killing Lukmin with the dicing board at the end of the uh, at the end of the scene so again it's brutal but uh, i did enjoy that um that scene in particular and partly because it it plays nicely with what the audience already know from the mahabharata and in in that respect there are quite a few scenes in the harivamsa which uh, which have a kind of intertextual intertextual relationship with other scenes in the mahabharata as you'd expect but, uh, it makes them funnier. It makes them, it means that uh, a lot is going on underneath the surface of the text. And uh, it, it gives the reader great pleasure, basically, to, to spot the connections. Um, so, those are just a couple of scenes, but you know, there are, there are beautiful passages throughout. I mean, one of the, one of the highlights of the Parivansha, really is the, um, the descriptions of the natural world, particularly in the. In the, in the forest land where Krishna and Baladeva grow up, uh, amongst the cowherding people in the, in the forests outside Mathura, the descriptions of the, the river Yamuna and the coming of the monsoon um, and the cows um, are just absolutely beautiful, just stunning poetry and, and the, the range of metaphor is, uh, is quite constrained in that the metaphors tend to be about the natural world, about weather, about clouds, about the sun. And this means that they're accessible, you know, because we all, you know, we, we all share the same natural world. So it's, um, it, it, it felt like the poet was just able to talk to me person
1: to person now Well isn't that the mark of uh, of a great poet
0: well, possibly i mean i don't I don't know very much about poetry and and there's all different kinds of poetry but uh, but uh, yeah, this is my favorite kind
1: now, what do you in addition to obviously being uh, an exquisite piece of literature uh, in addition to its aesthetic dimensions? Do you have a sense of what the Harivamsha hopes to accomplish?
0: What does it hope to accomplish? Well, it, it is advertising Krishna's identity as the great God Vishnu very, very clearly. So w- one of the things that it is certainly hoping to accomplish is the, um, the encouragement of Krishna worship and Vishnu worship. Um, I mean, it is a religious piece of work, and it's, its attitude to Krishna, although very playful and, you know, in some ways slightly irreverent, uh, it's, uh, it's very clear, he is God. And so we are supposed to be convinced by that, I believe. Um, and... You know it's more and more convincing i uh, during the process of uh doing the translation i i you know i did i did think about the world in terms of krishna more and more uh so that's certainly one of the things it's trying to do um more generally as part of the mahabharata um i think it's it shares in the, the general task of the Mahabharata, or whatever that might be. I mean, we, 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 we're beginning to agree on some of the aspects that the Mahabharata was trying to do. Um, and one of those things is to to combat the success of Buddhism. I mean, Krishna is a family man. Um, and he's extremely responsible towards his people, towards his family, uh, towards Brahmin's in need, anybody in need. And, um, I think this is a, a direct response to the story of the Buddha, wherein the Buddha is seen to renounce his social and familial responsibilities. He, uh, he was destined to be king, but he ran away from home and um, he lived his life as a wandering teacher. So, you know, that, that path was open to Krishna, but uh, he plays his role in a, in a very different way. And so, you know, I think that's one of the things that the Mahabharata does is to encourage the householder role and the path of, Conventional responsibility and Krishna presented in the Bhagavad Gita as the uh, the the paradigm of the person who does his conventional duties without attachment. Um, in the Hari we actually see that carried through in narrative form. We see uh, him doing his duties without attachment. So, so yeah, there's, there's that aspect and. Um, Part and parcel of that is a uh, strong support of the Hindu class system and of the Vedic tradition against the heterodox traditions of uh, Buddhism and Jainism. Um, Brahmins are presented as uh, worthy of support, worthy of respect, worthy almost of veneration, and certainly deserving of uh, funding. Um, and more generally for the Mahabharata, it is a story of a terrible war, and one of the things it does is to explain that war in divine terms as not just something that human beings were doing to each other, but as something that the gods were doing. They came down and took form in order to engineer enormous human destruction for the good of the earth so it's not an ordinary war in any shape or form but uh, nonetheless it does facilitate reflection on war from a human perspective and one of the things I think that we see in the story of Janamejaya who of course in book one of the Mahabharata begins this uh, hideous genocide of of snakes he, he, in order to avenge his father's death by snakebite, his plan is to sacrificially destroy all the snakes in the world and partly as a result of hearing the story of his ancestors and the story of Krishna, he changes his mind and makes peace with the snakes and so I think one of the general purposes of the Mahabharata and Harivamsa combination is to to show the audience how cycles of violence can be brought to an end um how people can you know rise above the horrors that have gone before and um and forgive each other and and move forward into peace so i I mean i think it's a it has a wonderful overall message, it, 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 certainly in those terms, that is uh, transferable uh, beyond any boundaries of, of religion or, or ancient culture for, to be very relevant to our world today.
1: Okay. That sounds like a lovely overview of, of, of the broad strokes themes of um, the Hari Vamsha. Now, why don't you tell us? Uh, are you are you still working on Sanskrit narrative? Is this part of a larger project? How does how does this fit in, if at all, with what you're working on now? Hmm. Well,
0: um, yeah. Thanks. I'm. I while I was doing the translation, I was conscious that I would never finish it if I kept on breaking off to write little articles about other things. So I did keep a list of. Uh, side projects that I was hopefully going to get back to afterwards. And um, I have done one or two of those things. So uh, I've written an article about Harivamsa chapter 83 in particular, which is the scene where Krishna's brother Baladeva moves the river Yamuna from one place to another forcibly with his plow. A very uh, interesting and, in some ways, peculiar scene. Uh, I've written um, a paper on various possible ways in which we might interpret that deed of his. That's just a a little paper, really. Um, More generally, I've written a piece that I hope will be published in the not too distant future about what difference the Hari Vamsha makes to our understanding of the Mahabharata as a whole so this is uh what I was saying earlier about integrating the Vamsha into our view of of the Mahabharata um, um and one project that I've begun which um I I have to say, has as, as proved to be a much bigger project than I initially envisaged, and, and it won't fit into an article, is, is, is a, a study of one of the, well, what for me is one of the, the great problems, or narrative problems, or mysteries of, of the Mahabharata, which is how the idea of Avatara, of uh, Vishnu's periodic incarnation in the world, relates to the scheme of the four yugas because it's stated on many uh many times in the mahabharata that the the kurukshetra war between the Pandavas and the karavas took place approximately at the end of the devapare yuga and the beginning of the kali yuga so that means that after krishna came after Vishnu came to earth in the person of Krishna, um, the net effect was the world got worse. And it's it's it seems to be a contradiction of the, the, the Avatara principle, as everyone knows it from the Bhagavad Gita, which is whenever Dharma declines, I come into the world to uh, punish sinners and to uh, restore the righteous. So it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's an apparent contradiction. Uh, I don't think anyone has really uh, got to grips with it before, so I'm uh, I've, I've been working on that and trying to trying to see if we can uh, if we, we can resolve that contradiction somehow. And uh, I, I hope that uh, I hope that we can because it's uh, yeah, as I say, it's one of the, the tricky aspects of the, of the Mahabharata, and, and previous scholarship on it has rather tended to try and make the problem evaporate by by effectively just saying you know these these two aspects of the text the avatara aspect and the yuga aspect are part of different layers of the text uh were introduced um comparatively late in the composition process and you know we shouldn't expect them to to talk to each other or to make sense in combination and uh you know that that's a plausible answer but uh I wonder if that's the end of the story. I wonder if we can potentially do better than that. So yeah, that's my current project.
1: Sounds like quite fascinating work. You'll have to share what you come up with in terms of um, the Harivamsha as part of uh, the Mahabharata whole. Definitely uh, related to stuff that I look at. Uh, Yesterday I just finally finished this manuscript looking at goddess and sun myths and the marking the purana which forced me to look at the purana as a whole to make sense of it and i'm glad i did because counterintuitively sometimes when you're looking at these you know uh, various pieces of the text um, there is sort of a, a meta filing system at play there is sort of an interlocking scheme that, that we often overlook and uh, it would be fascinating to see what you come up with in terms of uh, the extent to which the Harivamsa is integral to the Mahabharata as a whole, as well as this other problem that I never really noted. Uh, it sort of was in the back of my brain, and it's not something that i thought about, but, you know, I just assumed that Krishna was coming, or the Avatara was coming, on the cusp of things going completely sideways, as damage control for the last age. Um, but... At the same time, that's not that's not a, an altogether satisfactory answer. But I did think they, the yoga cycle and the avatar cycle um, uh, ideology that they were. I don't think you can compartmentalize them. You know, there has to be a way to make sense of them. There should be a way. I'm not sure how the tradition does, but I sort of thought, okay, well, uh, <laughs> stuff's going sideways. It's uh, you know. Um, uh, dharma's on the rise, so let's come down and, and restore the balance so that um, the world can survive the Kali Yuga. But at the same time. Right, so, so that things would actually have been an awful lot worse
0: were it not for Krishna's appearance. Um, I, that's sort of how I had mm, uh, looked at yeah, it. Well, I, I have one way of looking at it, but, yeah, but I, 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 I still kind of think that it would be nicer if, uh, if Vishnu actually made things better.
1: <laughs> Especially after your, 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 your time with the Hari Vamsha. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, no, you, you'll have to share what you come up with. Um, we've yeah. taken half of your time today. Maybe I'll talk shop with you for a couple of minutes after the interview proper. But uh, for those of you listening, um, as you know, we've been talking with Simon Broadback from Cardiff University on his huge contribution to, to hindu study scholarship a modern accessible lovely translation of a very important text the Harivamsa. simon thank you very much for being on the program today well thank you it's been my pleasure okay and for those of you out there uh, until next time which will be the new year this is the last one for 2019 <laughs> until next time keep reading